listening to the Rosenfeld Review Podcast, where we're just a bunch of blind guys trying to figure out that elephant. And I'm Lou Rosenfeld, your host, and I'm joined by my friend, Alan Chachanov. Hi, Alan. Hey, Lou. Great to have you here. Oh, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you. It's been too long. We, we should have done this years ago. Um, if you don't know Alan, he's the founding chair of the MFA in Products of Design graduate program at the School of Visual Arts here in New York City. Mm-hmm. He's a partner of Core 77, which I'm sure you know something about, but just in case you don't, it's a design network serving a global community of designers and design enthusiasts since 1995. Yeah, it's its 25th anniversary this year. It's not a lot of, it was the first online design community actually, but there's not a lot of internet uh, companies that have been around for 25 years. So. But then there's like people like us who've been around for even more than 25 years in this industry. So I, I thought that actually it'd be kind of fun for us to talk about, you know, the, the winding uh, careers that you can have and how younger people coming into the field may be a little uncomfortable with that uncertainty as they, they stand on the threshold of their careers. So... I mean, you you were telling me uh, before we started today that uh, your program is just coming up on its 10th anniversary and its eighth uh, graduating cohort. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the program to set the table, because then we could talk a little bit about how the program can help uh, people who are a little uneasy about the future and their own futures deal with this uncertainty that seems to happen to us all, whether we like it or not in this industry. Yeah, and certainly the volume of that uncertainty has turned up uh, right now. I'm not yeah. sure anybody really knows, you know, exactly how to how to deal with it, where to where to put it. Um, school's a nice place to be in times of uncertainty, and certainly in down markets, this is a conventional wisdom. And you know, design school is a really fun place to be. So this is a very nice way to spend your days, I have to say. My background: uh, I was a professional industrial designer for many years. I did a master's in industrial design at Pratt back in 1986 and 87. uh, And I practiced professionally for about six or seven years. I focused in on medical design, surgical instruments, diagnostic equipment. Um, I worked on the first home HIV test kit for Johnson & Johnson in secret for two years. Uh, Not a secret anymore. Um, Laparoscopic instruments, really just all sorts of fascinating things. Uh, Even when I was a student back at Pratt, uh, I love designing things, but I, I just sort of had a heartbreak around solid waste. I didn't want to design garbage, um, but I loved inventing stuff. And so medical design seemed a good fit for me. Um, and that's Is it uh, weird to be working on a classified project? I mean, did your did your friends and family think you were doing some military work? Uh, yeah, I don't know if, if, if that was the first guess. Um, my thesis was actually uh, around HIV and AIDS. Uh, I did a suite of products around uh, phlebotomy, which is the fancy name for laboratory blood collection. Uh, I want to design a stick-proof hypodermic needle. Uh, Honestly, you know, in those days, and it's still a little bit true for our students now, come to think of it, uh, you know, I was fishing around for a thesis topic, a territory, and a lot of the people I grew up with um, ended up in med med school and doctors. And a friend of mine who's an anesthesiologist uh, in Atlanta um, I was on the phone with him. I said, hey, you know, I'm really interested in medical design. Is there, uh, if you think of something for me to center my thesis around, I'd be really interested. Uh, and he said immediately, um, I don't have to think at all. We need a stick-proof hypodermic needle. 
Um, the health community is freaking out HIV just like a year, two years into, into it. Um, there was incredible anxiety and fear. Um, and it seemed obvious that uh, the hypodermic needles, like the, you know, sort of the, the most prevalent, what's called a sharp, um, needed, needed to be sheathed, essentially. Um, and so that's how I started uh, and then was able to find a small design firm in Connecticut who specialized in medical devices. And it turns out that some of my uh, HIV AIDS work uh, continued. So that was just really fortuitous. Uh, well, thank, and, thank you for that work. I mean, was there a point along the way where you thought about maybe uh, starting a, a hugely funded startup on uh, uh, on gathering uh, uh, blood samples that could then be tested for 35 different... Right, and then end up as, going. as an HBO special. Yeah, right? there you go. Um, yeah, I'm not sure that the word startup was was prevalent in those days. Uh, it was really exciting. I have to say it was thrilling. Um, you know, so many of us have uh, AIDS and HIV uh, stories in our families, and I, and I do too. And so it was very meaningful uh, to me. Um, I lost some family members to, uh, to AIDS. Mm -hmm. And so that takes you, uh, I, I guess, back to New York? And into yeah, I stayed, uh, you know, it, it was it was weird. I was living in Brooklyn and I was working in Connecticut. I was reverse commuting mm -hmm. for two hours each way, like on Metro North. It was pretty insane. Um, like really pretty, pretty nuts. Two hours each way every day. Remember, there were no like laptops or phones in those days. Uh, you know, it's reading the paper and, and sleeping. But the work was so exciting that it was worthwhile. Um, and then in 1995, I... Uh, I started teaching at Pratt and I met uh, Stu and Eric, who were the founders of Core 77, who created it as a, as a master's thesis project. Uh, essentially, they wanted to create a web. The World Wide Web is about two years old, and they wanted to create a website that they wished that they had when they were looking for graduate industrial design schools. Um, and uh, I used to hang out. Uh, Pratt incubated them, uh, gave them an, an office in the engineering building, I remember, in a T1 line. And, I used to hang out there at like lunchtime between teaching classes, learning some HTML, uh, which I have very fond memories of. And, um, and then gradually we just started doing more and more work together until I became, you know, formally a partner uh, at Core 77 in around the year 2000. Uh, so had a really interesting career in uh, industrial design, you know, like hardcore industrial design and then in design publishing and web publishing and like in sort of an editorial career, working with writers, managing editors, it was fascinating. Sorry. And you know, you remember, like we were just making it all up uh, in the 90s. Um, and still. Some of and maybe still, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Design education um, became a really big part of my life. I always, I love teaching. And um, about 10 years ago, SBA had approached me about creating a graduate program. Um, and I've, I've told the story before, I think it's okay. They were interested in a graduate program in industrial design. Um, I actually kind of said no. And they were like, what do you mean? You know, you have all this experience. And I said, well, you know, there are plenty of really good industrial design programs, particularly um, in New York City, and, and there are. Um, so I don't really need another one. Um, but also, you know, sort of classically speaking, industrial design is kind of a part of the problem. Like we can't keep making things where, the way we're making them. So we can't keep teaching people the way that um, we've been teaching them. Uh, and SVA was just like, oh, um, okay. Um, 
you know, and I skipped a beat, but then continued with, but I have very strong ideas around uh, what the future of design education actually might be. And I'd be very interested in imagining a new kind of graduate design education. Uh, that would be two years. That would be very multidisciplinary, um, very point of view and um, humanist and um, planetist. And, um, and away we went. I, did a proposal and, you know, they were like, great, build it. It was remarkable. SVA is like this, just like this amazing school where everybody's like happy and wants to help you. Uh, it's, it's remarkable. Yeah, actually. yeah I, actually, as a little bit of a, a digression, what's in the water there? I mean, I've well, you're not the, the only person I know who's who's had a similar experience. Starting, I know, I know, and you know, it's it's stereotypical. I mean, schools in general are like little cities, right? They're like mm -hmm. political. Um, you know, I think it's because it's an all, all adjunct faculty. Uh, there are no full time faculty, and there's no tenure. Um, and I think it's a quick jump to the to the idea that there's no politics because people aren't trying to like hang on to something and protect something. And when you have an idea. You just kind of do it uh, in a in a typical school. You'd, you'd form a, a committee. There'd be a curriculum committee. You would study. You know, like for instance, um, we just started this disability studies class uh, this year, and uh, last year we started design for public policy class. And I just really saw these things as being, you know, just sort of particularly urgent that I've always wanted to have in the program. You know, in a typical school, you would you would study. You know, does that course make sense? And then if that got approved, then you know, typically the the faculty member, you know, with tenure would be teaching it. Um, and, you know, that can get, it can be great. It can also get kind of dicey. So at SVA, we can bring in an adjunct faculty who is like particularly, you know, skilled in, um, in that area and really teach, you know, to the urgencies of the day uh, from a person who is professionally practicing in that area as, as their, you know, as their livelihood. Um, people, you know, I think, I think teachers in every school teach for the love of teaching, for sure. I think that's true always. But uh, SBA does seem to be this place that just doesn't seem to have a lot like in your way. Um, I, I never take it for granted, I have to tell you. Uh, it sounds like a very different experience than uh, uh, my own uh, teaching at a research institution. Mm -hmm. But uh, we'll leave it at that. This is your story. <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure you had um, great experiences too. But uh, yeah, no, it's been um, SVA definitely makes it makes it easy for you, and we try and uh, we try and make sure that the students know that that there's a spirit of generosity and a willingness to try things, um, you know, from the top down kind of thing. Um, I think it's really important. And one other notable thing about our program, we don't have grades. Um, I had asked and they said, you can decide if you want to have grades or not. And I was like, oh, no grades. Absolutely no. You know, I think one of the biggest problems in the world is what we choose to measure um, and how we measure it. And um, I, think, uh, I think grades, I don't actually think grades belong in any education, but particularly not for um, graduate school, particularly in design. And, you know, that, that builds trust. I think that it's hard to, you know, trust your instructor when you know that they are measuring you um, and easier to trust them uh, when they're not, when you're both just after the same thing, which is, you know, exciting, daring work. You know, it's sort of the other reason why no grades make sense is it increases the likelihood of risk. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm honest, you know, with myself. It's like, I know that a lot of our students have grown up in a lifetime of grades. 
Mm-hmm. I also know that grades might help a couple students over the years that, you know what, they actually might have done better if there were grades. Um, but generally, it does increase the likelihood that students will take more risk and be a little bit more daring in their work and just sort of go for it when they know that there's not going to be a penalty if they sort of, you know, if they miss. Of course, there is no really missing in design. Well, I'd like to come back to those students and, and think about how they approach this whole issue of, well, uh, uncertainty about how one's career might unwind and, and what you discovered by telling us the story of your career is a, is a perfect uh, lead in. But we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. I hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you want more, not only do we have a whole bunch of podcasts in our archive, but we have something that's very current, very alive, and very engaging for groups. And that is our communities. Rosenfeld Media runs a variety of communities that meet on a monthly basis for video conferences on a variety of topics near and dear to UX people, ranging from enterprise experience to advancing research, to design and research operations. I want to encourage you to join one of our communities. Again, it is free by going to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. Not only will you get a monthly video conference that you can listen in on and participate in, ask questions and so forth, we'll give you access to the recordings. And uh, for some of those communities, we're talking about dozens of recordings with really interesting presenters and facilitators. You'll also get a newsletter. You'll get access to an advice columnist. Yes, we actually are providing advice columnists for each community. And finally, if you're interested in our conferences, our communities correspond to our conferences. So you will be the first to know when programs uh, when programs go live, uh, when tickets go on sale, and by the way, most of our conferences sell out, and other good things about our conferences, such as uh, when the scholarship applications open up. So go to rosenfeldmedia.com communities. You're going to find something that's free, something that's interesting, and it's a great opportunity to find your tribe as well. We'll see you there. Hi, you're listening to the Rosenfeld Review. I'm your host, Lou Rosenfeld, and we're getting back to a conversation with Alan Chachanoff of the School of Visual Arts in New York City about creating one's own program and helping students wind their way, uh, or at least understand the winding path their careers are going to take. So how do you build that into a program like yours? How do you help them focus on something that is not so immediate? as the future. I mean, there, I imagine a lot of them are just really joyfully uh, locked into their projects and, and each other and the collaboration and uh, camaraderie of being a, a grad student. But, uh, you know, how do you prepare them for that time beyond and the uncertainty that comes with it? Yeah, I think that this is probably the most important question. You know, definitely there's a balance between training and educating. Uh, I think that students have a reasonable expectation that their skills are going to increase, that their you know market value is going to change. Um, our first uh, responsibility is is to educate, though. Uh, you know, they're going to have very long lives, decades and decades uh, in the world of design. And, um, you know, something I've said to a few students 
even in the interview process, I'll say, listen, I know that you're like worried about your first job, but we're training you for your next job. Uh, we really consider this a leadership program. And we have, uh, we've really tripled down on the social sciences and like all of what a lot of people would consider soft skills uh, in design, because we know that those are the skills um, that are going to, well, last a lifetime, that are going to, um, you know, help them be really functional in groups and help them be optimistic when things aren't looking so well and help them say yes when other people are saying no. I think that the two things that we want our students to leave with most are uh, point of view. Uh, we actually have a course called Point of View and it actually might, we think we can teach it, um, and confidence. And those are the, the, the strongest things that I think that you can give somebody in any program. Do you ever get pushback from students and say, I, I'm paying all this money for this program to learn how to design and you want me to learn how to, to listen? how to communicate what the hell yeah it's perfectly put um i always um quote petrula brontikas who's at art center who says that she works with her ears <laughs> um yeah the listening is just so important uh we have a lot of design research courses we also like talk a lot about the limits of design research that people actually can't tell you you know what they want um i'm certainly not the first person to to say this or to think this um but there is a critical place for uh, user-centeredness, but there's also a pushback on user-centeredness. Like, frankly, like users are the problem. You know, like people are, uh, you know, we need to think like beyond like, you know, users. Um, and moving to things obviously like uh, co-creation and community-based innovation, um, equity-based um, design, you know, these are some really interesting models that I know that you're talking about in um, in your work, in your conferences, and the speakers that you have. Uh, you know, there's so many amazing places for the practice of design uh, to go right now. And so I think that the education of the practice of design has to, has to go there alongside. And so that when our students leave, they have these fluencies, they have these, you know, sort of the lights have been turned on in these different rooms. And that... Um, when they have ideas to share, uh, whether they're um, working in-house or as a consultancy uh, or um, as a freelancer or as an educator, um, that um, they're speaking a contemporary uh, language of design. I, I, I remember giving a lecture a few years ago and the name, you know, the idea was like, what are the contemporary fundamentals of design? Because, you know, when I went to school, the fundamentals of design were point line, plane, volume, texture, and color. Like, I can actually recite them. Like, it was completely ridiculous. Um, there, was, there was nothing about, you know, humor or charm or serendipity or humility. Like, none of those things were the ingredients of design. And uh, I'm, I'm just certain that you would agree that those are, like, the essential ingredients of design right now. Um, and so the name of our program, you know, Products of Design, argues that everything is a product of design. Uh, but our students study as much service design and interaction design and social innovation design as they do product or industrial design. Uh, and we like it that way. Um, it's about being like multi-fluent, multidisciplinary. So, uh, it, you know, you're exposing them, as you said, uh, to a multidisciplinary set of perspectives and um, by extension, I'm sure, languages and frameworks. Yeah, that, that lots of jargon. 
Yeah, I'm pro-jargon. I'm not anti-jargon. I think jargon is the way that you understand a subculture um, is through their, their lexicon. Like, and we actually, in lots of our courses, the students will put together like a lexicon, a glossary of terms for their thesis, particularly. Like, what are the words that people in this, you know, territory or domain use when they talk to each other? So everything is so specialized right now. How does a generalist actually bridge across um, thin, thin slices of specialization? I think that's, a, that's our mission, actually. So you're giving them a lot of the sort of raw material of skills that they're going to need for that winding path. But mm-hmm. do you also have them do any kind of exercises to see themselves on that path? Like, let's all sit down and plot out the next 40 years of our careers. Like in, in, in your thirties, what can you envision yourself doing in your forties or, you know, something along those lines that, that actually kind of gets them to see themselves at a point beyond this one. Yeah, that's so great. We're going to have to come to have you come in and do that workshop with them. Um, we do actually a fair bit of featuring uh, work. I do talk about the, you know, the philosophical time space worm um, and uh, freedom and determinism, you know, we like to look to the future. A lot of designers will design for the year like 2075. Uh, and you know, it's a bit of a preposterous time frame. I think even looking five years out now, especially now, mm-hmm. is like plenty. Um, so we do tons of speculative design. What you're talking about is sort of speculative futures in terms of their own life and their own career. Right. So I love that you're talking about this. Um, you know, I, I think I've said many times that, uh, you know, our faculty represent like future use, like let's say I'm talking to the student, right? And we have like, you know, 34 faculty. We have a lot of like um, short courses. I believe that people can learn things much faster than most people think that they can. Um, and uh, and it, it adds like an excitement, a compression to a course. We've had a lot of uh, success with seven week courses versus 15 week courses. And that each of these faculty represent like a kind of a future you. Like what is it like to have like, you know, Paola Antonelli's like design life. Um, and, you know, when the students study with her, they're, they're studying with her you know, her Mm -hmm. point of view. And, you know, we really do encourage our faculty to like, you know, complain about the client meeting today to be, you know, sort of cliche about it. Like if you had a shitty day, like tell them. Um, And if you are okay with sharing that, the students really love that. And so at the end of the program, you hope that there is, as I said before, a set of skills and educational like grounding, but just so many like exemplars of what a design life looks like. Like what's it like to work at Blue Ridge Labs um, at Robin Hood Foundation versus what is it like to be at Frog or IDEO? And not versus, just sort of in addition to. And I think that um, this is, um, is one of the great takeaways of, of, of really like any education, but I think particularly from this department is we will try and sort of show you future use, if that doesn't sound too awkward. And then- I love it. I don't know if you, you don't particularly pick one. I think that you, you know, you're sort of an alchemist. You take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Uh, there's no question that most of the things that what our students will be doing in five or 10 years, you know, like don't even exist right now. You know? Yeah, actually I thought it might be a, a- Information design, for instance, you know. Exactly. Um, I thought it might be a good uh, place to bring our discussion to a conclusion by actually talking a little bit about some of the 
places that your students have gone in the five to 10 years since you started, well, really eight, five to eight years since you've been graduating them. What's, uh, what's been surprising for you or for them? Um, also such a good question. You know, across the gamut, like maybe predictably sort of, you know, places like Frog and IDEO and some of the, you know, design consultancies that a lot of people really want to see. Um, but then some really fantastic, successful freelance careers uh, and starting studios of their own. Um, Anju Wegemann has received just a lot of awards and support and fellowships around uh, redesigning the rape kit. Mm -hmm. um, and she's actually working on a kit and a platform for SANE nurses. Um, and so careers that, and so that started with her thesis. So we really love careers that start like with the thesis. Uh, it's not necessary and we don't actually frame the thesis like that, but it sure is great when a, when a studio can start, you know, very like our first graduate, Richard Clarkson, uh, the third week of the program was Hurricane Sandy. Uh, I'm sure some of the listeners remember remember that. Yeah. And Richard had done, you know, the students were learning some Arduino and they were making like these plush toys. And so he made this cloud, you know, this interactive cloud that was Arduino based that had like a motion sensor. And when you walk under it, it like thunders and lightnings. Um, and, you know, we published it online. It went completely nuts and, you know, created an entire like studio for him. Um, and, you know, he does these commissions around the world and has all sorts of, you know, different kinds of furniture um, and lamp. So I love like the, the, the spectrum between, you know, reimagining the rape kit and a fluffy Arduino cloud that thunders and lightnings when, you know, 12 people walk under it kind of thing. We want sort of the broadest spectrum uh, sort of inputs and of outputs. And what's nice is, you know, now that we've actually, you know, we've got some graduates out there, they also become, uh, you know, sort of emblematic of like future use. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and then of course, you know, in a nice family network for students to reach out to alumni to say, you know, what was it like to work at Pentagram? Like, you know, what do you think about uh, being at Argo Design or, you know, do you think that my life makes sense as a freelancer? Because honestly, and we talked about this a little earlier, you know, I get pretty restless. Like, I don't know if I would be happy at any particular um, organization, you know, even at a consultancy. I think I really want to like be doing my own thing. So it's only now that we have a nice track record and a, a, like it's getting close to 100 alumni where we can start to point to the different things that people did, you know, when they left. It's a very gratifying moment, you know, as you can imagine, like, you know, to actually like have alumni coming back and talking about their, you know, careers enough years down the line where they've actually evolved. Again, sort of the next job that I was talking about before. It, it sounds like such an amazing place. Um, anywhere where the thesis uh, helps lead to a career rather than derails it. <laughs> Sounds like a uh -oh. place to get one's MFA. Do, do you have a, a, a horror story there? Uh, I, I wrote, um, I, uh, I didn't write a dissertation, but I, I did all my coursework uh, in my PhD in information science. Ah, perfect. Ago, and then I, I decided that wasn't for me. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, if you look at your publishing platform, you know, we have all of your books. Our students read several of them. Um, and your conferences, I mean, you're in the information science business in many ways. Oh, no? absolutely. No. Um, but I might not have made it if I had to write a dissertation. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Well, they I say might not have survived uh, this world if I had to write a dissertation. Yeah. Well, they say that you should stretch your PhD out for seven years because then you get to complain for it for seven years. I met some people who like wrapped it up in three years. And I'm like, what are you doing? And they're like, what do you mean? I said, you could have complained for four more years. So they laugh. I don't know. I, I've met some uh, ex-doctoral students who I think didn't hear seven. They heard 70. <laughs> yeah. I guess there's a bit of an expiration date at a certain point. Or should be. Um, <laughs> I like that. Um, this is great. Um, before we, we wrap up, I always like to ask if um, my guests have a little gift for our listeners, uh, a book, uh, an article, a person, a project that they think deserves to have a little sunshine shown on it. Yeah, this is such a generous gesture of yours. I love this. I, I did think about this. I also thought about this uh, famous quote, Arthur Schopenhauer had said, um, we love to buy books because we believe we're buying the time to read them, um, which is very, it's sweet. It's sort of bittersweet. Um, well, by the way, you know, the flip side of that for authors is the gift of writing a long form piece like a book. I mean, it is a true gift to be able to sit down and right? think about something you care about for so long. Yeah. Really too long, but that's another story. My sister's um, writing a book uh, right now, um, tentatively called Homework, which is about, she's a management consultant and a family therapist, which I always tease her as like the same thing. You know, <laughs> like, you know, pardon my language here, but like sort of big fucked up families and small fucked up families. You know, mm -hmm. please edit that out if that's, if that's disrespectful. Yeah. Anyway, so she's actually writing a book about uh, like what, um, what organizations can learn from family therapy um, and systems uh, and what uh, families can learn from like organizational theory. Uh, and I think it's going really well. Um, so, so that's a book that I would, I would pre-pitch. Um, you know, we have a very distinctive last name. So if that book shows up in a couple of years, you'll be able to know it. Um, I did think of a few books that would be um, nice to shine a spotlight. You know, the first one, um, is Emily Pelton's uh, Girls' Garage. These are actually three books that we're doing um, book clubs on um, over the summer and continuing uh, where the author comes, the students will read the book first. But um, I don't know if your listeners are familiar with Emily Pelton, but she is just an extraordinary force in design. And, you know, many people, including me, believe uh, that, you know, girls and women, you know, are the future. Um, I would definitely recommend Half the Sky, um, from, um, from, I guess, about five or six years ago as one book, uh, foundational. But Girls' Garage is it's like an encyclopedia of like tools and know-how, but there's some really great, uh, almost sort of like manifesto writing in the beginning. So I'd definitely point to that. Uh, and then two uh, really pretty new books, um, one by Jamer Hunt called Not to Scale. Uh, uh, just an absolutely fantastic, very readable book that... Um, talks about how uh, scale is very much, it's, you know, I, I mean, I guess I don't want to put words in his mouth, but it's sort of like the medium that we, we swim in right now. Mm -hmm. um, in the way that like um, Present Shock um, by Douglas Rushkoff was really talking about, this is, uh, I guess, four or five years ago, like that we're, it's about time, it's about now. It was very important, like the internet like now, doesn't like soon or doesn't like the amount of time that it takes to sort of consider anything. 
Uh, so presentism, he coined a lot of language. I think that uh, Jamer's Not to Scale book is really about the role that scale has and how um, we imagine the world and as creative people, how we, you know, design the world. I don't love that expression to design the world, but, you know, it's, it's useful in, in this instance, um, not his expression. Uh, and the other one um, is Robert Fabricant and Cliff Quang's uh, user-centered. Oh, sure. Um, yeah. And that um, is just, again, also like very readable, lots of wonderful examples. And uh, that's a kind of good book to give to your like parents, I think. Um, you know, whenever, uh, whenever I teach any class, really over the last, now in my 25th year of teaching college, I always assign Ralph Kaplan's book by design. Um, he, he just passed away, um, just a giant in the world of design. But I was advised when I was back in grad school, you, know, you should buy two copies of By Design, one for you and one for your parents. So they would like understand, you know, what you were doing in design school. It's like very tiny, very thin, very funny. And so I feel a little bit about like user centeredness that this is a good book to buy a couple copies of and to give them to people in your life who don't really understand like, you know, how sort of, you know, innovation is like this, you know, iterative process. And, and uh, you know, in some sense, like, one of the way one of the places that it springs from you know uh so i think that those those well four books now and five including my sister's future book uh maybe a little you know i'm answering a little too much to the one no I, I love it actually I, i'm thinking of getting girls garage for my daughter oh definitely um, yeah. i'm very interested in the scale book because uh Maybe that's someone who should speak at an upcoming enterprise experience conference because that's a lot of what we deal with is issues oh, of scale. Absolutely. And uh, you, um, your sister's book is uh, is going to be interesting because it's a combination of two areas that don't, that people don't put together very often. And there's all kinds of interesting stuff at at the intersection. So I'll, yeah, well, especially I'll, now. I mean, your last guest, Alana Washington, I talked about this collision of like the personal and the work that they're like, they're sort of like one thing now. And, you know, that's really challenging and problematic. I think healthy roles and boundaries are just important in life. Um, so it's interesting that you say that, like maybe when this book comes out, it's time will be, it will align nicely with, you know, the idea that it actually needs to come out. Well, it gives me hope for my daughter who's uh, uh, 17. And I asked her recently, so what are you interested in studying? Mm -hmm. Well, two really different things. Uh, marine psych, marine, marine biology, and psychology, and I don't know how I'm going to put them together. And I said, you know, I, I think you'll be fine. You're going to come up with a new thing called marine psychology. <laughs> but um, anyway, Alan, that's a good, that's a good dad. I like this parenting. <laughs> I just wanted to squeeze that in. So thank no, you. No, I love it. And we're going to look. We're going to look for her book in um, I don't know, twenty years, twenty eight or something. Yeah, something like that. Sooner than we think, right? Help you find a publisher. Alan, so good yeah. to talk with you. We have Alan Chachanoff, the founding chair of the MFA program in products of design at the School of Visual Arts here in New York City. Alan, uh, it's probably too late for me, but uh, I wish your program was around uh, when I was in school. I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Your students are very fortunate and we'll be fortunate to have them in the industry. Thanks again for joining. Well, thank, thanks so much, Lou. Again, we have every book you've ever published on our bookshelf. We continue to buy them. We require them in a lot of our courses and Rosenfeld Media is like a big part of, you know, being a designer right now. So thank you for everything that you do. It's really an honor to be on this, on the podcast. Much appreciated. We'll do it again sometime. Thanks. 
listening to the Rosenfeld Review, brought to you by Rosenfeld Media. If you like our show, please subscribe and review it on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. I'd love it if you tell a friend to have a listen. And please check out our website for over 100 podcasts with other interesting people. You'll find them all at rosenfeldreview.com.